Welcome back to the Drive Plug TDP. I'm Mike. This episode will follow the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health NIOSH report entitled One Probationary Career Firefighter Dies and Four Career Firefighters Are Injured at a Two-Alarm Residential Structure Fire and this occurred in Texas. The date of release for this event was September 16th of 2005 and the event occurred on December 20th of 2004. We'll begin with the summary. On December 20, 2004, a 24-year-old male career probationary firefighter, who was the victim, died after he became separated from the fire attack team at a two-alarm single-story residential structure fire. The fire attack team and a search and rescue team entered the structure through the front entrance. After approximately four minutes, the crews the victim was operating with had to perform an emergency evacuation from the structure due to intensifying uncontrollable fire conditions. Immediately after the evacuation, a Personnel Accountability Report, or PAR, was called, and soon after the crews realized that the victim was missing. The Rapid Intervention Team attempted to search for the victim, but was unable to make entry due to the fire conditions. The victim was found approximately 15 minutes after the PAR, about 15 feet from the point of entry. The victim was pronounced dead on scene by the county medical examiner. We'll discuss the department. This was a career fire department involved in this incident and had five frontline responding apparatus, five stations, 86 uniformed firefighters, and served an urban population of approximately 67,000 in an area of about 35 square miles. The victim's training and experience, the victim had graduated from a state certified fire academy in 2002 after receiving 560 hours of fire training. The victim had also completed 64 hours of continuing education credits related to firefighting since becoming a probationary firefighter with this department. He and I were hired on in the same year. The structure, the one-story residential structure was approximately 3,700 square feet in size and was built in 1976 of wood frame construction with the brick veneer exterior and a freestanding interior fireplace. The roof of the structure was of composition shingles over wood shingles in some areas. The structure was heated and cooled via electricity. All entrances and windows of the structure were secured with burglar bars and swinging wrought iron gates and or doors. The two-car garage at the west end of the structure had one large wooden door. There was a glass sliding door at the Charlie side of the, uh, of the structure. The owner of the home was not home at the time of the incident. The living area and layout of the structure are depicted and should be on the Facebook page. So we know a couple of things at the at Jump Street here. It's a large single family structure and we know that it went to two alarms. Now two alarms around here means a significant fire and receives significant response. It's you know slightly larger uh, than their response but not really by much. So we all probably realize that the farther from the city core the more sprawling the floor plans become. And so it's not uncommon for a command to pull the hook on a second alarm, and which is typically reserved for commercial responses. But because of the square foot footage um, is approaching that 
of, of a commercial range. And of course, also dictated by the volume of fire that one sees upon arrival or as the fire progresses. We want to maintain a situational awareness that allows us to compensate for, you know, exposures or threatened exposures, things like that. So if the manpower dictates due to the volume of fire, uh, the second alarm is certainly an option. You know, this particular home was maybe in the lightweight building practices, you know, um, as indicated by the date and, and um, that was something that the fire department would probably already know as gathered intel from other fires in the area over the past, you know, 30 years. Um, likely the house would be full of Christmas decor. I mean, it was December 20th and it could possibly be over full with flammable materials. Um, the weather conditions at the time of the incident included 14 mile per hour winds out of the south, southwest, gusting to 31 mile per hour. The ambient temperature was 66 degrees with a relative humidity of 56%. Note that it is the opinion of the NIOSH investigators that the wind, which was reportedly gusting from the Charlie side to the Alpha side, or the side of entry of this structure, played a considerable role in the fire spread at this incident. Diving into the investigation. On December 20th, 2004, at 15:11 hours, the 911 center received a telephone call of a house fire. The initial report was, from a telephone company employee working in the area. He told the 911 dispatcher that he could see smoke coming from the eaves. Additionally, he stated that he could hear alarms going off inside the house and it didn't look like there was anybody at home. The caller also stated that the fire department would have a fun time getting in because the home was covered in burglar bars. At 15:11 hours, the 911 center dispatched the first alarm. All responding units were en route within two minutes of the alarm. So, you know, they're, you know, Cracker Jack crew, they're, they're moving quick and they're doing a good job. Battalion one was the first on scene at 15, 15 hours, followed closely by engine ladder one and battalion one set up a stationary command post in his vehicle on the alpha side and assumed in incident command. Then Engine ladder one positioned directly in front of the residence on the alpha side. The IC reported light smoke visible from a large one-story residence and immediately assigned engine ladder one to perform entry and fast attack. An inch and three-quarter pre-connect was pulled off of engine ladder one and was taken to the front door, but immediately entry was not possible due to the locked burglar bars and or gate over the door. The lieutenant from EL-1 sent the victim back to EL-1 to retrieve a K-12 saw for forcible entry through the front door. Engine 5 and Engine 2 arrived and staged on side A at 15.17 and 15.18 hours. So the second due companies are there within five minutes. Pretty good stuff. Engine 5 and Engine 2 were assigned to the IC to assist EL-1. With forcible entry and then to perform a primary search, firefighters from E2 brought the irons as they disembarked the engine and they made entry about the same time that the victim had returned from EL1 and started the K12 saw. So just to kind of rehash things, the smoke indicators tell us that the home was already advancing to a structure fire. 
uh, smoke coming from the eaves as described by the reporting party who was a telephone company guy. You know, that indicates the gases had already filled the overhead space and were now pushing out of the lower vent points and void areas. So it's, it, you know, likely in the attic or, or getting close. That's something to be weary of, at least. So it's, it's likely in the attic. So tactics are expanded. Now the IC reports light visible smoke upon arrival. And then, you know, some of the other things we realized, we realized that the response is, is pretty compact, right? It's got a lot of good response times. We've got the first first due there within within four minutes. The second and uh, the second due companies are there within five minutes. This is a stand-up job by these guys. You know, the second due companies are arriving at about the same time. You know, this is a good feeling. All of us have, have probably experienced the rush of converging at an inter intersection. You know, multiple rigs coming from multiple directions, you know, air horns blasting, rigs busting traffic, and, and beginning the final caravan into the scene with the second due truck slipping by and, and making the block to come in to the scene from, you know, like an opposite direction. It's crazy for the citizenry there in the intersection it's kind of panicked chaos for civilians but it's it's a symphony to behold for the inbound companies you know these are the things that i live for this is uh, this and, and a hand line squirting through the flame or gases of a window or vent or an attic vent uh, letting the whole world know that there are companies inside getting work done but this is a confidence booster to the scene. It's a, it's a heavy dose of manpower to overrun the fire. So we're feeling good about this at this point. At approximately 1519, the point in time that the front door was forced open, the IC noticed that smoke rolled out at the mid-level of the door. EO1, who was a lieutenant and two firefighters, immediately went inside with the line. It was later determined that EL-1 progressed approximately 15 to 20 feet into the structure, and e Engine 2 entered immediately after EL-1. At about the same time the crews were making entry, the IC was informed by a neighbor that if there was a car in the garage, the resident was at home. At 15-20 hours, the IC requested Engine 2 to bring a second line stretched around to the right side of the garage and ordered the garage to be opened. The IC asked Engine 2 if it could be handled, but there was no response from Engine 2. At this point, the Engine 2 crew had already entered the structure with an, uh, Engine Ladder 1 crew and had initiated search and rescue operations. At 1521, Engine 3 arrived and was assigned to be the rapid intervention team. The garage door was not opened. And there's a note here that says, after extinguishment, it was determined that there was no car in the garage. So... Right away, there seems to be kind of a miscommunication from command to engine two. It doesn't seem like they were aware of their quest by command, you know, that they bring a line to the garage side. Uh, this has happened to me uh, many times. Once we receive an assignment, I'm very bad at focusing in on the task implications of that assignment, and I've missed information from command after. It's vital that we program ourselves through training and also in the everyday training we get by making rides, be they fire or other, to read back information given over the radio so that the sender has a receipt of that information, right? It's basic communication model. But also I, I kind of take notice of this note, this after extinguishment it was determined that there was no car in the garage. 
I can sometimes th see things written in these reports that are kind of arrows directing the reader to some conclusions about the fire. In this passage, we read that nobody forced the garage door to see if the car was inside, which would have been an indicator to command that nobody was home and presumably would have de-escalated the scene and, and less aggressive tactics could be taken. I'm not saying that's the intent of this line, but I'm saying it. Fire attack and search were initiated because the default stance is that there could be somebody inside needing rescued. To insinuate that the car was the deciding factor in a go or no go or aggressive versus defensive uh, posture is it's counterintuitive on, on so many levels. You know, one is if the door had been forced to the garage and there was no car there, would a, a search of the interior not have taken place? The answer is of course not. The neighbor was well-intentioned but could not possibly account for the status of the occupant's car. And then the other point is that how many times is a, you know, like a total picture of the fire ground fully realized? How many times has a 360 been hampered by fencing or junk, a vicious dog or, or you know, down power lines? Would we then alter an aggressive interior attack? and search because we couldn't get all the recon necessary? I think the answer is again, no, right? We oftentimes operate with minimal intel and that's just the cost of doing business. Now back to the investigation. Meanwhile, due to the congestion, six firefighters immediately inside the door, the engine five crew staged at the entranceway on Alpha side. When EL-1 and E-2 crews made entry, they came into contact with the back of a brick fireplace, directly in front and approximately four feet inside the front entrance of the structure. If anyone has gone into a, gone into a burning structure and, you know, under zero visibility conditions and immediately struck something with, with their lid, you know how confusing and disconcerting that is. It takes just a minute to kind of get your bearings. It must have been really confusing to walk four feet inside an entrance and hit a solid wall. And we're talking brick, you know, you, you probably could discern that with your, with, with your gloved hand. Why in the hell am I running into brick four feet inside this structure? It's a weird thing to run into. The crews, two lieutenants and four firefighters, both turned to the right of the fireplace to enter the structure and began searching for the seat of the fire. Members from Engine 2 were operating a thermal imaging camera in the immediate, immediate vicinity of EL-1 crew who had the hand line. It was stated by the lieutenant from EL-1 that he thought the victim might have stayed at the door to feed hose. The lieutenant and firefighter from EL-1, who was a nozzleman, advanced the line, and the nozzleman reportedly hit a window with a stream at the west end of the house, which broke out. So, this is a huge gush of air, and it's something that has repeated itself in many, many fire uh, investigations that, that I've read. One in particular sticks out. It was, I believe, done by the ATF, and they did kind of a computer simulation on it. It was a great presentation, but it was all about a line of duty in San Francisco, and it, it had two main considerations. There was um, a breached sliding glass door at the bottom. Actually, it was kind of multiple sliders 
that breached on this subfloor. So it was one of those that was like one story from the front and three stories in the back. And this subfloor um, slider broke loose, uh, busted open and gush of wind. Um, of course, it, it blew fire directly on the advancing hand line who was actually going down, down grade. So you've also got the downgrade considerations and it was it was a bad deal. So this broken glass becomes this huge problem because as we remember, the wind is blowing now from the Charlie side and that's the way they're advancing from Alpha to Charlie. The EL-1 lieutenant and the nozzleman then advanced the hose line further into the structure and the nozzleman told his lieutenant that it was too hot and that his hands were burning up. The EL-1 lieutenant told him to hit the area to the left at the ceiling level, which was done and the fire blackened down. EL-1 lieutenant then told the nozzleman that the fire was also to the right. The hand line was opened up again for a longer burst, then it was shut down again. It was at this point that the nozzleman was forced to set down the hand line, handing the nozzle to the EL-1 lieutenant and stating that he was too hot. The lieutenant from EL-1 stated that the fire immediately began rolling down to about knee level above the floor. All interior firefighters were immediately overcome by heat, intense heat and flames. The lieutenant from EL-1 stated that the lieutenant from E-2 was trying to communicate with him, but he could not understand what he was saying. All he heard was yelling and a muffled voice. It was later stated by the lieutenant from E-2 that he was trying to convey that they needed to bail out. At this point, the fire intensified further to the left and right, and it was reported that all at once it sounded like firefighters were yelling back out, back out, and bail out. Also at that point, the EL-1 lieutenant yelled to the E-2 lieutenant that they needed to back out. EL-1 and E-2 lieutenants stated that they yelled for everyone to get out, and it was about that time that EL-1 lieutenant believed that he himself was on fire. The engine ladder 1 lieutenant then set the nozzle down and followed other firefighters and the hand line out. So they knew they had their lifeline, and this thing was just a blowtorch. This was an unforeseen blowtorch at the time. It immediately, immediately transitioned into this overwhelming fire that was blowing directly at them. And if you can recall, they went around what is a, a brick fireplace. So the fire is kind of maybe swirling at this point. It's not coming from one direction. It's all of a sudden just kind of surrounded them. The crew from Engine 5, who was staged at the front door on the Alpha side, stated that only minutes after entry was made, they heard muffled yelling and firefighters began crawling and running out of the structure. Engine 5 crew began assisting the firefighters as their gear was either smoking or on fire. And I can promise you that guys who come out, they don't want you touching them. They don't want you touching them. They really don't even want you helping them with their gear because every time they move or every bend or crease you make uh, creates a contact point and that heat just is just overwhelming. At this time, and, and that speaks to this kind of helplessness. You want to help your buddies out. They're obviously in pain. They're obviously freaking out. And there's almost nothing you can do because they it just hurts them so bad. At this time, Engine 3, who was writ, 
was approaching the front door. The time was approximately 1523 hours. At this time, the Engine 3 crew, who was writ, was approaching the front door. The time was approximately 1523 hours, less than four minutes after initial entry was made. The Engine 5 lieutenant stated that he ran over to the IC command post and informed him that they had firefighters down and to call for additional EMS units, thinking on his feet. We need more people here. That's something that when when you're just punched in the in the mouth with something that is just kind of overwhelming, it's incredibly, it speaks incredibly well of this guy that he could uh, maintain the focus and, and request those e additional EMS units, speak calmly to the to the uh, incident command and assist them in their on-scene needs. The IC immediately called for a second alarm. Again, great response. Of course, manpower is going to be needed. And of course, this fire is now overwhelming what we have on the ground currently. So that second alarm is vital. Now, we have to make a, a little notation here. The second alarm for this department is a single engine and the dispatch of a volunteer fire department, which re reportedly had an approximate 30-minute response time. You know, that's going to make things a little itchy. But if that's what you have to work with, of course, that's what you do. It was solid, solid IC work because it was recognized that more manpower is needed. This fire is overwhelming. The IC also called for additional EMS units, two additional EMS units, and a PAR. Engine 2 reported they had a PAR. EL1 also initially reported they had a PAR, but then immediately radioed back because they're removing their hot gear and they're burning up. And they immediately radioed back that they did not have a PAR. The IC immediately notified dispatch that a firefighter was missing. Immediately afterward, the RIT team, again, that was Engine 3 crew, was activated, but reported at 1528 hours that although temps, attempts were made, they could not make entry due to the intense fire conditions. The IC reported a defensive attack mode. It was at this time that the RIT pulled the handline out of the structure and used it to try to knock down the fire. At 1528, after the conditions continued to worsen, the decision was made to set up and use the deck gun on engine five to, for this kind of hard knockdown of the fire. The driver operators from engine five and engine three had by this time hooked up engine ladder one to a hydrant and had begun flowing water to them. In addition, a three-inch supply line was laid from EL1 to engine five. At 1531, the deck gun was opened on engine five, which was staged at the driveway of the residence. Also at 1531 hours, engine four, who was the last available fire department apparatus to arrive on scene with a lieutenant and three more firefighters. Two firefighters of the engine four crew were sent around to the rear of the house to flow water with an engine three-quarter hand line in the direction from Charlie side to the Alpha side. So note at this point in the defensive recovery operation, the hose line at the rear was operating in the same direction as the wind and was opposing the deck gun from engine five in the initial attack line that the RIT team was operating at the front door. Yeah, um, we're still putting out fire though, right? After approximately two minutes of flowing water from the engine five deck gun, the IC ordered the lieutenant from engine four to find a partner and make entry to find the victim. 
At approximately 1533 hours, the lieutenant and firefighter from engine four made entry through the front door, searched the right, and eventually found the victim approximately 15 feet from the front door in an area where the original attack line had been advanced. The victim was removed at 1541 at approximately the same time that a structural collapse occurred at the rear side of the chimney, the Charlie side of near the chimney. The victim's SCBA face piece was in place, strong on him, good work. His gear and SCBA was badly damaged by the heat of the fire, and it was noted by rescuers that the pass device was not sounding. So the cause of death, according to the county medical examiner, the causes of death were listed as thermal injuries and smoke inhalation. You know, I think training considerations here are that size up is critical, you know, to include wind direction. It, it's unclear as to whether or not a 360 was performed. Um, likely in 2005, it was not as widely used or you know recommended, so to speak. And so it's unclear if the glass slider in the back was even known to exist. Uh, other studies from the San Francisco, again, that ATF study indicates that you know critical failure of these doors is consequential to crews on the interior. So would the direction of fire attack have been altered if the glass slider was, was known? as well as assessing for wind. How do we treat bi-directional vents? Um, you know, smoke pushed out at the knee level when they, when they, made, when they made that door in the, on the alpha side. You know, is there more to see? Can you, can you get down below that level? That's sometimes something that people no longer rely on, getting down below that smoke level and actual, actually visualizing a, a path of ingress. It's extremely helpful, right? We're kind of tick-driven a lot these days, and, and some of those smaller details get missed. It's well worth the effort. You know, constant voice communication with your nozzle. Flow and move. You know, those two things go hand in hand. It's, it's a constant pulling of slack and, and advancing while this line is flowing, especially in these, these instances where it's such high heat. Um, use the nozzle in a disciplined fashion on entry, of course, uh, using your, your uh, whipping of the line and um, things like that to, to direct your fire attack, so to speak, and direct, maybe direct some of the gases, you know. Um, but, you know, you're using it to advance on the fire. You should also work on how you come out of that fire still flowing water. There are times where the heat is gonna wanna beat our eyes shut and we need to be able to move forward against it and also retreat from it occasionally um, if conditions warrant. Scene discipline, uh, don't clog up the main ingress because that will be the main egress. So that's happened multiple times. I've been trapped on stairway, staircases and things like that. And uh, if something violent happened, it would be a mess. Recommendations and discussions from this report. Recommendation number one, fire department should ensure that a complete size up is conducted prior to making an offensive attack. Recommendation number two, fire department should ensure that risk versus gain is evaluated prior to making entry in this in a fire involved structure. Again, I this is a residence. It's not like they could do let's let's just say that it was it was um a structure that had fence line on either side with a locked gate and it was going to be some time before you could get around and make that 
360. This structure, just by what you can see in the photos, is not common. And of course, it's a large structure to begin with, but, but the layout is not common. So doing things like, like your size up from the street on, on your way off of the rig, um, trying to size up the structure and determine what side of the house the bedrooms are on, what side of the, this is not just super intuitive on this particular house, just by the roof line itself. You couple that with the fact that it is still a home and it is occupied. It, it, it's not maybe currently occupied, but there is a person living there um, at some point in time. And so you can't just write that off. This is a potential whether that person, whether that car was there or not. I just don't like the implication. But I understand what the recommendation is. It just it kind of leans this report in a direction that I kind of wish it didn't. Recommendation number seven, fire departments should provide SEBA face pieces that are equipped with voice amplifiers for improved interior communications. Again, if you do have the integrated voice amplifiers, make sure you know how to radio out. We use the opposite side of our face from the voice amplifier because that gets out better. But keep that sucker on because it does make communications inside a whole lot easier at times. Recommendation number eight, firefighters should ensure that hose lines are not pulled from the burning structure when it is possible that a missing firefighter is in the structure. I've had a hand line pulled out from uh, my hands and it's not fun. It appears that I skipped um, a couple of recommendations. Recommendation number three, fire departments should develop standard operating procedures or SOPs for advancing a hose line in high wind conditions. They have a good quote in here from uh, Chief Dunn. Quote, when the exterior wind velocity is in excess of 30 mile per hour, the chances of conflagration are great. However, against such forceful winds, the chance of a successful advance of an initial hose, attack, uh, hose line attack on a structure fire are diminished. The firefighters won't be able to make forward hose line progress because the flame and heat under the wind's additional force will blow into the path of advancement, unquote. It says this phenomenon was reportedly what occurred at this incident. According to the Texas State Fire Marshal's report, the wind at the time of the incident was 31 mile per hour, blowing from Charlie to Alpha. The fire and heat were advanced toward attacking firefighters as soon as they opened the door on the Alpha side, and reportedly intensified further when the window on the Charlie side was broken by the water stream, when that firefighter made the uh, initial entry and initial attack. As the interior crews quickly retreated, the victim apparently became separated or lost and overcome by the advancing heat and flames. Recommendation number four, fire departments should ensure that team continuity is maintained. But how difficult when you're bouncing off of the guy in front of you and the guy behind you is bouncing off of you and all of you are, are burning up. How difficult is it to maintain that crew integrity? I hate this situation because it is an every man for himself kind of thing. And it is a very difficult place. It's a very difficult acknowledgement of the limitations that we, that we have for crew integrity when things are just going aside on, on scene. 
Um, recommendation number five is that fire department should ensure that a backup hose line is pulled and in place prior to entry into fire involved structures. I do agree with that. Backup line should be uh, uh, rapidly achieved um, and brought in to assist, uh, you know, the backsides of those firefighters. In this case, uh, when that heat and that that bi-directional vent kind of changed and it turned into a flame front, a hand line uh, flowing right behind those guys that were initially in trouble uh, could have um, maybe altered some of the outcome here. Recommendation number six is that fire departments should consider using a backup standalone personal personal accountability safety system or pass device in combination with self-contained breathing apparatus um, equipped with integrated pass devices. So they're kind of doubling up there. Now we are back to recommendation number nine. Fire departments should train firefighters on initiating emergency traffic mayday mayday and manually activate their pass alarm when they become lost, disoriented, or trapped. So in previous episodes and probably in future episodes, we will talk about the mayday, mayday, mayday. Maintain discipline. The training in that is essential. Understand how it works and how it goes together and how you can affect it the most positively when things are going bad. Recommendation number 10, fire department should instruct firefighters not to overcrowd the area of interior attack team. I think that wraps up this episode three. Earn your days on the rig because we're all lucky to have them. And remember the fallen because they died heroes in service. Thanks.